be reading from Matthew 16, verse 24 through 25. You can follow along in your Bible or on screen as I read the passage aloud for us. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, um, the, the season that we're in, uh, in Lent, where we get to kind of specifically focus on ourselves in ways that, um, that we typically don't get to focus on ourselves, where we can look in and visit those maybe darker places, those shadow places, those places of false self and ego um, that, uh, that we could be invited with you just to let go of. And as we do that this morning, I, I, I pray that there'd be this uh, kind of a thread in here of, of, of love, that all of these things would be seasoned, all my words would be seasoned with love from you, God. So help, help me as, um, as I teach in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Last uh, week, we began uh, this new series that we're calling uh, Losing Self, Knowing Self. And my hope in this series is to try to, to be a guide to you, that's my hope, um, in the journey of Christian identity. Now, the journey of Christian identity, uh, one that's found in Christ, looks something like uh, the call Jesus gives to lose yourself in order to find yourself. This is the text that we just read from Matthew 16. Um, Jesus wants us to lose ourselves, but not for the sake of losing ourselves, but for the sake of finding, you can say, our, your true self. And so Jesus says you have to deny yourself, you have to lose yourself, and by doing that, you will actually find your true self. But also, at the same time, paradoxically, it is to lose yourself. The Christian journey is one of, uh, of denial and losing of yourself, but it's also, at the same time, about knowing yourself in order to to know God. So it's kind of a paradox. You lose yourself, but actually you have to, to know yourself, and you have to know yourself well enough to know the parts that you actually have to let go of. But as you learn yourself and know yourself, you're actually learning about God as well. Uh, Augustine wrote this in his, in his Confessions. He said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And then he prayed, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. John Calvin wrote in his opening uh, of the Institutes of Christian Religion, he said, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. There is the sense that you, you don't just have to deny yourself as a Christian, but you actually have to know yourself as a Christian. And as you know yourself as a Christian, as you grow in knowledge of yourself, you will grow in knowledge of God. Or as you grow in knowledge of God, you will grow in knowledge of self. So the journey that we're on will mean a loss and a knowing, a loss of self and a knowing of self at the same time, a denial and a discovery. Now, but why, you know, the question that I wanna kind of put out there this morning is why take this journey at all? Why take this journey at all? Well, I said last week, our modern identity structure, the one where um, everyone from your therapist to your parents to your life coach to your favorite social media influencers are all out there telling you 
that in order to find your true self, you have to look within. You have to go inward to find what you want or who you are deep down. In other words, the modern approach to identity is I am my desires or wants, those ones that are really, really deep down. And this is where we're taught to find a sense of self. And not just that, our cultural stories tell us that finding our sense of self by throwing off and shedding what everyone else says we are is actually the hero's journey. This is, the, I mean, this is the journey of the Barbie movie, as we talked about last week, throwing off those, those things that culture puts on you to find your true self. This is the journey of Moana. Now, no shade on either of those movies. Both of those movies are incredible. But that's the hero's journey. Every culture has stories. Every culture has stories as ways to explain why human life isn't what it ought to be and what can make human life better. Every culture tells stories of how to restore human life back to order. Our cultural story goes something like this. What's wrong is authority or power or what is put on you by your family or your culture that is trying to keep you from who you really are and what you really want. And the hero's journey is to find yourself and be you. That's I mean, that's, that's, you know, how um, Encanto ends, by the way. All of you, all the song, all of you, all of you, the miracle is you. I don't know that because yesterday I took, we took our kids to see Disney on Ice, and that's how the whole thing ended. <laughs> and again, no shade to that movie either because the first, like, three times I saw that movie, I cried. It's really good. But that is the hero. This is, this is we're so tuned to this frequency as a culture, we're so, so shaped by these stories from our culture that to go against them feels wrong. If I told you, do not go find yourself and be your true self, you'd go, no, that's wrong. If I told you, there, you have to leave your family of origin, you have to leave some of the things that culture puts on you and become you, you would go, oh yeah, that's right. That's completely right, and you wouldn't even question it because this is the cultural story that all of us are living in. It feels like a betrayal to our world and our place in our world to think otherwise. But with this cultural story comes a lot of problems. Because we said last week, identity is, um, is who you are and where you get your value. Identity is who you are and your sense of worth. So, you know, we're many things. There, there are things that are, are true about us in different roles and different places that we go. But with identity, the question is this. What is the core truth in all of those roles and in all those places? What is the same about you in every place you go, in every role you have? What is identical? Identity, identical. That's kind of where we get it. But not just that. Where do you get your sense of worth and value? What is, what's the identical thing about you that you fundamentally live for? Where's your source of recognition and significance? These two things, who you are and where you derive value, that is your working identity. And because that is an identity, you know, that, that's identity across cultures, across time, that's how kind of everyone defines identity. Finding it in our cultural, um, our cultural structure, finding it by looking within, by following your desires and what you want, that surfaces a whole host of problems, namely fragility. Our modern identity structure is incredibly fragile because it's based, if it's based on desires and feelings and those things that are within, those things change. 
And not just change, but those desires conflict. You feel conflicting things all the time. Which one is the real you? If there is no absolute truth outside of yourself by which you are measuring the you that is you, how do you choose which conflicting desire is really you? And not just that, but no one finds themselves just by looking within. You find yourself by looking within and then emerging to see if what you feel matches with the social or cultural imaginary. So you look within, you find that thing, you emerge with it, and you look around going, is anyone, is this accepted or not accepted? We do all, always, we, all of us do this. Um, the philosopher Charles Taylor coined this phrase, the, the social or cultural imaginary, when he says this. In the secular age, he says, the social imaginary is the common understanding which makes possible common practices and widely shared sense of legitimacy. What he's saying is that you might think you are, simply with, you are simply looking within to find who you are, but that is a lie. You are lying to yourself. What you're doing is you're pulling the social imaginary in as you're looking within yourself in order to judge if what you feel is acceptable in the social imaginary. An example, if you looked inside yourself and found that you are an angry, angry and violent person, that that does not fit with our social imaginary today and, and where we live right now. And you would say, I need therapy. I need to see a therapist because I'm angry and I'm, I'm violent. In other cultures, that would actually have been a very acceptable thing. They would have put you on the front lines to defend the tribe or the, or the, or the people or something, the village. And you're like, we need you. But today, you need therapy. If you looked inside and found out and found that you were black instead of white, that's not allowed in our social imaginary. If you looked inside of you and found that you were genderless, neither man or woman, well, that fits in our social imaginary. Now, <clears throat> I know that we're not allowed to talk about such things. I, I know that. And you're like, oh my gosh, she's gonna get in so much trouble. Um, <clears throat> I'm not on social media, so I don't really care. Um, <clears throat> There's a reason why we did digital fast and this at the same time. <clears throat> I know, I know that we're not allowed to talk about these things and they're deemed as hateful speech. And that is because, um, well, sometimes people talk about them in hateful ways and it is hateful for sure. But also, in our modern identity structure, we create who we are and if anyone disagrees or doesn't acknowledge who I have created or found myself to be, this means you're not validating who I am and thus you are trying to erase me. And because I am whatever it is that you say you are, and if you don't agree, then I don't exist. So whenever there's a disagreement, we can't just be in disagreement because the I that I constructed is under attack, full attack. And so you're hating me by not seeing me. All that to say, our modern identity structures, whether they are built around being perpetually young or beautiful or being special or successful or our sexuality or fill in the blank, they are all incredibly fragile. Now, what's the alternative? Now, you might think I'm advocating for more of a traditional identity structure. It's like one where you get your identity from your family or your duty, but that has a host of problems as well. What I want to suggest to you for the rest of this series is that an identity 
based on the divine call is what you are meant to become and the great task of Christian transformation. An identity based on the divine call is both what you are meant to become and the great task of Christian transformation. So what do I mean by the divine call and how do you begin to find your identity, to find your identity uh, by the divine call? By divine call, I mean what God says about you. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is unique among religions and and cultural stories, in Judeo-Christian tradition, all humanity, all humanity, it says, not just your tribe or your people or your nation or your ethnicity or your background or your family, all humanity is made imago Dei. That is, in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. First off, all human dignity, all human dignity talks and all equality talks and all human rights talks has its roots right here. Here. And not in any other tradition or science. Here. Yuval Noah Harari rightly says in his very famous TED Talk, that human rights is a story. There is no proof for it at all, in evolution or in science. And it's a story that's brought to us by the Judeo-Christian tradition. And he says that as an atheist. Now, his conclusions, though, are bleak, because he goes on to say, depending on your net worth or privilege, because he says, um, we could make up new stories, We can leave that story behind and make up new ones, new ones that transcend our humanness and become something more than humans, and those that can't keep up with the progress, we don't have to kill them off or anything. They'll have Apple Vision Pros and drugs to keep them distracted and happy. That's literally what he says. I mean, he doesn't, Apple Vision Pro didn't come out then, but he's like, we have technology that will just keep them on video games and, and addicted to those things and even drugs, and they can just do their own thing, and then the rest of us can transcend our own humanness and make up new stories. That's his, his conclusion. But the point remains. He says, human rights, and the way that we built all of our human rights is on this story, this Judeo-Christian story. Now, I say that to build some credibility in this text for what I'm gonna say next. Human identity, according to Genesis 1, is that which identifies humanity as a unique and particular creature among creatures. So we were created separate and different from every other creature on this planet, and a creature that is defined by its relation to God. We are the only creature that's defined by its relation to God. When you or someone you hear says or talks about human dignity or the divine spark in each of us, what we are saying, even without knowing it, is that we can only know ourselves and our worth in relation to the God from which the spark came. We have no divine spark without there being a relation to the divine. And thus, we can have no human dignity without a relation to the one who has given humanity its unique dignity. Does that make sense? So, 
you can't just say, I don't need God, I can find my own identity. You, you can't. You, the only reason why there is a human dignity, there's uniqueness among all of the creatures, is because, and you can say it's just a story, what other story do you wanna live by then? Choose the other story, what, what's the story? But this story, the story that you claim you get your human dignity from, your, the, the equality from, all of the human rights from, all of this stuff comes from this story, that you were made in the divine image of God. And thus, you only know yourself in relation to the image in which you were made. Does that make sense? Okay. So, and what this means according to Genesis 1 is that we are only human because we're Imago Dei. We're not made human by God and then at the end just stamped with the divine image. He doesn't create humanity and is like, you know what? I'm going to give you a stamp. Divine image. I'm just gonna call you. That's not how it works. That's not how it works in Genesis. God says, let's create humanity, mankind, in our image. And then out of the image of God, he creates them. And then they become male and female. And then they become, I mean, they become human after the divine image. So which, what's the, the most core essential thing about humanity is that we're made in the image of God. We were made in the image of God first, which resulted in being human, which resulted in being male and female, which resulted in being stewards of creation, which resulted in being rulers together with God on this earth. Okay, but how do I make that my identity? If you were here during our last series, The Vision is Love, I did a teaching on the Trinity. And I said that the Bible says that God is love, 1 John. God is love. And the love that is God must be, must be Trinitarian. Because love can't just be one. That would be self-love, and you need another. But love can't just be two, because that's its own kind of selfishness. Like, have you ever had a close friend fall in love and leave? Like, your friendship doesn't matter anymore. And everyone, when, when I said that, was like, oh, yeah, I like a lot. Living in San Francisco for X amount of years, that happens all the time. It's that thing where lovers can become so focused on their mutual exchange of love that they become a closed circle that excludes all others. Okay. So the love that is God, or the God that is love, as the most perfect love must exceed and even, uh, must exceed even a shared love between two divine persons. It can't just be two. The perfect love that is God must not simply be interpersonal love, but overflowing love. Shared love is properly said to exist when a third person is loved by two person harmoniously and in community and the affection of the two persons is fused into one affection by the flames of the love for the third. Okay, this is all review for all of you. You're like, oh yeah, I'm tracking, easy. Okay, so the God who is love is Trinity or the love that is God is Trinitarian. Now here's the implications of this and what it has to do with Imago Dei and your identity. You were created out of this divine love. You were created out of this divine love. Being made in God's image is being made out of love, by love, and for love. At the very core of who you are as an image bearer of God is one who is deeply loved, created from love to always be encircled in this great love and to live in it and from this love. But we said earlier, every culture and religion has a story, a way to explain why human life isn't what it 
what it ought to be and what can make life better. Every culture tells stories of how to restore human life back to order. And the Bible story goes like this. You were created out of love, a Trinitarian love. This divine love said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. And you were created out of this reality of love to trust God who is love, to fully trust God who is love, and to live in harmony with God and with the earth and with one another. But we were tempted and tricked out of this trust in God. We were tricked out of dependence on the love of God. We were tempted to leave it and rely on ourselves to become our own sense of good and evil, to judge our own sense of good and evil, to be our own little gods. And yet, even though we are now misaligned and disordered, because after that comes the fall, after that comes a, 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 a disintegration of everything, after that comes a disordered, a misaligned love, all our loves get misaligned, all our loves get disordered, at, still, at the very core of who you are, even right now, we, are st we still, as humans, we still deeply want this love. We want validation. And we need it as humans. We're starving for love. But we no longer know where to find it. One of the ways we try to find it is in the people that we respect. In people or communities where we deeply desire their love and acceptance. So we look to other people Will you accept me? Will you love me? And we are all going around trying to negotiate this with other people. Will you respect me? Will you, will you see me and love me? And that's, because that's the core of our, that's like what we want deep, more, more deep than anything is to be accepted and loved. And so we go around to people. But the problem is people and things and communities are as fickle and broken as we are. And so we're looking for love from people who want love too. And then it's like a barter system, and then there's jealousy involved, and then when our love becomes Trinitarian, when, we, when we're in a relationship with one person, another person comes in, and we're like, oh, who do I, uh, what do I do here? How do I negotiate this? Well, this, is, this, is, this is life. Tim, Kel Tim Keller says this. Tim Keller says, unless you are esteemed by someone you esteemed, you esteem, you will, be, you will have no self-esteem. Unless you are esteemed by someone you esteem, you will have no self-esteem, which is a really great way of saying this. I need to be esteemed by someone I, I esteem, and therefore I'll have a self-esteem. And th this is true. I, I remember listening to an interview um, with uh, uh, Harry Styles being interviewed by Zane Lowe. Um, I don't know why you're laughing. That's a great, that's, that's a great interview. It's a great, it's a great combo. Um, and Harry Styles said, said after his last album came out, he said this to Zane Lowe. He said, uh, quote, that the industry you want the most love from, music, the music industry, he's speaking of the music industry, the industry that you want the most love from only loves you when you're on top of your game. And he was reflecting on the anxiety and disorientation this creates in the music industry. Like, I want the music industry to love me, because why? I, I, want to, I want this thing that I esteem to esteem me back but it only steams me as I'm performing and doing really good at what I do. But here's the thing. All of this is part of our humanness. This is just part of being human. This is part of our Imago Dei. We can't deny this part of us unless we become psychopaths. You can get out of this, just become a psychopath. <laughs> Literally, that's, 
But if you live in, in actual, like, Imago Dei humanity, you will want to be loved by other people. At the core of our humanness is this great desire to be loved as we are, to be seen in all of our imperfections and contradictions and egos and shadows, and to be loved right there. This is what it means to be human. But how do we get there? The Christian story, how do we get to this place where we're, that we, we receive this love, we know this love? Um, the Christian story says that God himself enters the world as, wait for it, a human. Jesus is called the second Adam, meaning the human who will finally live life as a full human, the way Adam and Eve were supposed to live. The one, the first one, the only one to ever actually do it. The first one to get an identity not from what other people say or even what he himself says, but from what God says. The first one to get a sense of vocation from God alone, approval from God, to live off the love of God. And so when Jesus is baptized, there are these words spoken over him in Mark 1.11. A voice came, as soon as Jesus came out of the water, a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, in the story, this comes before Jesus really does anything. Jesus hasn't started his ministry. He hasn't done anything, really. He just shows up and gets in the water. And the Father says, I'm pleased, I love you. And Jesus lived from this voice. It was apparent that he had learned to live from this voice his whole maturing life. We can deduct that because Jesus had to learn and grow as any other human does, that he had to, he had to discover this identity. He had to learn it. And this identity allowed him to be both bold in his proclamation of the kingdom of God, bold in his speaking against people who kept others in oppression, bold in his anger against demons or forces that keep people from knowing and receiving the love of God. He was bold, but at the same time, this identity allowed Jesus to be humble, to not have to defend his pride or take the bait to become what others around him wanted him to become. So that's why right after the baptism and this voice spoken over him from heaven, it says the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness where he was tempted by these other voices. He was tempted by Satan into other voices. He said, if you are the Son of God, like you turn the stone into bread. You can do anything. One writer, author says, he interprets this as saying that Jesus was, was tempted into power. You can find your identity being this powerful prophet that knows how to do miracles. Do that. And Jesus says, no. Um, I'll live off um, God's word alone is bread enough for me. And then the second temptation was to throw himself off the temple. And surely God won't let you die. The angels will catch you. This was a temptation into like prestige, into like um, uh, these, these powerful acts of, of being you know, popular. What all, he would just be trending everywhere. But, um, but Jesus says no. Don't put your Lord God to the test. And then finally, Satan takes him and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. They're mine. I'll give them to you all. This was a temptation to, to possess everything that he wanted in life. And Jesus says, get away from me. 
So Jesus hears this voice from the Father and then is tempted into all these other voices, which is the human story. We're tempted into all these other ways to find an identity. And then at the end of Jesus' life, John writes that during the Last Supper, Jesus took this place of humility and washed his disciples' feet, an act reserved for servants and slaves. And while describing it, he talks about Jesus' motivation. What made Jesus do this? And John says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got it from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he wrapped around them. Did you notice that John puts in there the motivation behind this humiliating act, this very humble act? The motivation was, he knew he was from God. He knew he was going back to God. He was secure in this identity of being from God. And because he was secure in this identity, he was able to do the most humiliating thing. Like, who would do this? So much so where John's like, uh, Peter was like, no, no, you're not washing my feet. Like, that's, that's wrong. I, you shouldn't do that. That's like, this is an act reserved for servants, and you are the Lord. You can't wash my feet. And then Jesus says, if I, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And then Peter's like, okay, wash my whole body. And then, and then, and then Jesus is like, I'm just gonna wash your feet, bro. Is that cool? <laughs> this all comes from Jesus' identity. Jesus lived his entire life and died a sinner's death, all knowing and living from this human identity of Imago Dei, being loved by God and trusting in God for his identity, and he was the only one to do it. And at the very end, his prayer, a prayer that I bring up in this church as often as I can, this prayer for you and me to get a glimpse of what Jesus did all of this for. What was his whole life about? And he says, my prayer is not for them alone in John 17. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you see what that's saying? Like that we would be brought into this this loving unity with God that is at the very core of, uh, of reality itself is love, that you would be brought into this love and, and that you would know that God loves you even as he loves Jesus. Not like kinda like he, likes, he loves Jesus. Like a little bit. Even as God loves Jesus, that you would know that you are, you, God has loved you even as you've loved Jesus. This is what Jesus was doing all of this for, to restore us back to our first and only real human identity, being the Imago Dei, being the beloved, receiving that voice at the core of who we are. But here's an important question. If our identity is to be found in being the Imago Dei, which is found in being the beloved of God at the core of our being, why does the New Testament speak about our identity being in Christ? 
Okay, these are, might be confusing phrases. You're like, am I, is my identity in Christ, or is my identity in being the beloved, or is my identity in being Imago Dei? Like, how does that all work together? Do I choose one, like the one I identify with the most, and go with that one? Like, wh- how, how does this all work together? Uh, the, the, the New Testament talks about our, our life now being hidden in Christ, or our true selves are in Christ. And the answer to this, this question is, you know, in Christ, being beloved, or um, Imago Dei. The answer is, the reason why the Holy Spirit works in us as Christians into conformity to the image of Christ is because Christ is the full human who lived fully in the image of God. Does that make sense? So if we're gonna be like Christ, what we're gonna actually become is more human. We're gonna become more fully human. And so our true identity, the truest identity that we have is found in Christ because in Christ we see full humanity. And so as we're in Christ and discover ourselves in Christ, we become more fully human and thus more fully ourselves. So you will actually become more different as you become more in Christ. Not more the same, but more different. Now C.S. Lewis had this really, really good way of explaining this. Like how are we all conforming and becoming like the same person, but we're all gonna be different? And C.S. Lewis said it would be like people who lived in a cave and never seen light at all. And you're trying to explain to them that when the light comes, you will all see how different you are. Like how, how can the same light hit us and all of us be different? You don't know until it happens. But when the light comes, you will see this light and the same light will hit all, hit all of you and will illuminate how different you all, re- how unique you all really are. It's the same thing with, with as you find yourself in Christ, you will find yourself as being the, like way more unique and way more different than you are just being homogenous and not all the same. So our lives are in Christ and we find and discover our life in him and when we find our lives in him, we find our true selves. Now, we'll explore all of that next week. But I wanna end with... Um, with a song that came on today as I was driving to church. So driving to church, uh, this, uh, the, the Chance the Rapper song came on. Um, he hasn't been mentioned in a while, so he has to be brought up. <laughs> Off coloring book album, uh, Finish Line slash uh, Drown, if you know the song, the song is incredible. And um, Finish Line is like, uh, the song, and then Drown is kind of like, uh, Drown, D-R-O-W-N, Drown, um, is kind of like a, a secret track that comes on at the end of the song. So the song ends, and there's a silence, and then the, this other song starts picking up, and it features No Name. Uh, she's a, a rapper and a poet. She's incredible. And the song is about receiving a faith from the prayers of your ancestors. One that you you didn't want at first or didn't realize the importance of it until it hits you full on. And then the, the line that honestly, to like, like as soon as, like recent as like on the way here makes me cry, like every time. This, just this line, I don't know what it is about this line. Maybe the way she, she speaks it or raps it or the way, I don't know what it is. She says, um, she goes like this. She says, like everything is everything, which is a call back to uh, Lauryn Hill. And... Uh, <clears throat> Everything is Everything is a song by Lauryn Hill that talks about the struggles of living in uh, like an urban environment, the struggles of being um, 
a, a black female woman in the inner city. This is, that's what the song Everything, Everything is about. So she's calling back to that, like the struggle of life, basically. Like everything is everything. Like all them days he prayed with me. Like emptiness was tamed in me. And then she just goes, and all that was left was his love. And all that was left was his love. And she keeps repeating the song. All that was left was his love. It's, I think the part that makes me cry is that it's when, when you actually find yourself in Christ, that emptiness that we all experience in our modern world becomes tamed. And as it's tamed, all that's left is God's love. And all that's left is God's love. And then, right after that, a gospel choir kicks in. And then a full gospel choir kicks in when Kirk Franklin jumps in <laughs> and says, Chance, let me in. And then it just goes off, right? <laughs> and <clears throat> the thing I want you to know, I think, the most out of this whole entire series is that that love that is God, when, it's, when, it's, when you find it, it will tame in you. It will remove the, the, that like existential heartburn that you have for like, where's my meaning in this life? Where do I fit in? How do I become who I, I, I really want to be? How do I get rid of this shadow side that I hide from everybody? How do I integrate my family of origin and the struggles that I've come from into this life? All of that is tamed by God's love and is soothed by God's love. And then from there, you and I can start to discover, not build, but discover an identity in Christ that is completely unique to who God made you to be. Would you stand and pray?